Du lytter til live fra det Kongelige Bibliotek. Mit navn er Uffe Poulsen, og jeg præsenterer denne ugenlige podcast med highlights fra det Kongelige Biblioteks kulturscene i den sorte diamant. I dette afsnit vil du møde den amerikanske forfatter Jonathan Safran Foer. Foer brød igennem i starten af nullerne med romaner som Alt bliver oplyst og Ekstremt højt og utroligt tæt på. I 2016 vendte Foer tilbage til romanen med bogen Her er jeg. Inspireret af begivenheder i Foer's eget liv handler romanen om en skilsmisse. I samtale med journalist og litteraturkritiker Jess Stein Pedersen fortæller Foer om sin kreative skriveproces, om sit jødiske ophav, om de små og store tegn på et parforhold i krise. Foer besøgte det kongelige bibliotek kun to uger efter indsættelsen af Donald Trump som præsident. Samtalen kommer derfor naturligt nok også ind på chokket over valget og tilstanden af det amerikanske demokrati. Undervejs i samtalen læser skuespiller Thomas Levin uddrag af Her er jeg. Samtalen fandt sted i den sorte diamant i København den 2. februar 2017. God fornøjelse. We're going to talk about literature, but we cannot avoid also talking about the new president of the United States. But I'll keep that, you know, in my pocket for the next 45 minutes. So it's going to be literature first. Uh, but you have something you want to tell us first, Jonathan, about your dog. I'm very curious. Well, it's not that I have. First of all, thank you for coming. Um, I am always so happy to come to Denmark whenever I've published a book. And this evening in particular was something I so especially looked forward to when the book's publication was imminent and I knew that I was going to have to have to and get to travel around and talk to readers and critics. And it's had such a memorable experience here last time. And we also had such a memorable experience in New York. So I'm really looking forward to it and I'm grateful. Um, i don't have that much to say about the dog. You had said backstage you wanted to talk about something before digging in, and I said we could talk about my dog. Um, <laughs> the reason I brought it up is I left for Germany on January 26th, and that's the day after my older son's birthday. And I'm going to get back to New York on February 3rd, which is the day before my younger son's birthday. And what the two of them want for their birthdays is a dog. So we have a dog. I wrote about this dog in Eating Animals. I wrote about it in other ways in my other books. She's still alive, but she lives on a farm now, which when, when I say that, it sounds like I'm telling you a story as if you were a child and she were really dead. But she, she literally lives on a farm because um, she was too old to walk up and down the steps. And, and I've- We see, yeah. yeah. So not a farm in the sky, but an actual <laughs> And so I thought, wouldn't it be funny if I got off the plane in New York with a dog? I thought maybe somebody in Copenhagen has a dog that needs to be, that needs to go to a fire, yeah, that needs to be adopted. The only, the only catches are it has to be small, like 20 pounds or less. And because of our new president, it can't be Muslim because... <laughs> I wouldn't be able to bring it into sure. the country. Yeah. Oh, okay, fantastic. And you all heard that. Anybody who has a dog, please come forward. 
Uh, it doesn't have to be Jewish, just not Muslim. Oh. Although Jewish would be ideal. As some of you might know, uh, I met Jonathan in 2007 in New York. We made television for Danish Broadcasting Corporation. We met in the very same suite where Arthur C. Clarke wrote Space Odyssey in Chelsea Hotel. I could get an applause there, but don't. <laughs> uh, we met uh, in Central Park. We met in Brooklyn in front of the public library. And we met at Ground Zero. And we also met uh, close to the Hudson River. We talked about Terra. And I guess this reality and narrative of Terra is still a driving force between the disruption of politics in the United States. It's impossible to talk with a modern American writer, I guess, without having this as a backdrop, the big politics. But let's start with something else falling apart, the marriage of Jacob and Julia. What is the core of their struggle, uh, as you see it, Jonathan? Well, it's just so horrible to see yourself, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, forget about September 11th, just <laughs> seeing yourself is its own catastrophe. Um, it's the only thing in life worse than seeing your parents have sex is seeing <laughs> yourself. So what is the cause of Jacob and Julia's catastrophe? I think what makes it a tragedy is that there isn't exactly a cause, you know? Um, if we're easily explained, then solutions would be more easily found, I think. So these are two people who are, they're smart and they're good people. They're flawed, but they're good people. They're not ignorant, they're not careless, they're definitely not cruel, even if they sometimes behave cruelly toward one another by accident. But they're, they're good people and they love each other. They properly fell in love. It's not a case where somebody accidentally becomes pregnant. It's not a case of an arranged marriage. They fell in love and they built a life together and they built a family together and to all external, for all appearances sake, to anybody looking from the outside, they seem to have a very good thing. You know, they have three kids who are intelligent and well-adjusted. They are both successful professionals in their own way. And they look happy. And oftentimes they feel happy. But this strange thing happened where as they got closer and closer on the level of running this business that's a family and... Um, you know, negotiating daily schedules and what groceries to buy and how to cook the dinner and cleaning the dinner up together and thinking about what the kids' needs are and, and trying to satisfy them. They could do all of that really well, but then when it was just the two of them, which was an increasingly rare experience given that the family was of getting larger and larger, when it was just the two of them, they had a very difficult time relating. And for whatever reason, they started withholding or at least measuring, you know? I don't know if you know this, I won't put you on the spot, but most people know the experience of when a certain kind of measuring creeps into what used to be effortless. So you wake up, let's say you had a little conversation the night before that was just, a, had a little tiny taste of something not so good. Neither person can put their finger on what wasn't good, but you just know it wasn't quite right. And then you get up the next morning and she doesn't pour you the cup of coffee like she normally does. but. Maybe that's excusable because you did come down a little bit late, so, and then you decide, I'm just gonna keep the section of the paper that I normally give to her, which is not a huge deal because sometimes I do keep it for myself and she probably won't notice anyway, but then she does notice and then she normally you know, would kiss you goodbye, but she finds a way to be on the other side of the 
kitchen when you're leaving, so it just waves goodbye. And each person, in a way that's plausibly deniable, you could always say like, oh, no, 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 I was just, you woke up late, so I made coffee just for myself. And oh, no, I just wanted to see this part of the paper. And I was standing over there, and everything has an excuse or alibi. But little by little, all this measuring, it's like a, a game of chess that two people play with each other. And the game board gets bigger and bigger and bigger until everything becomes a move. And they find themselves very far from where they had started. We know from Tree of Codes that you like to cut in pages. I cut this out from your new novel. Please read it aloud. aloud. It's about Jacob and Julia. So this is from right near the beginning, page 37, as it turns out. There were things Jacob wanted, and he wanted them from Julia. But the possibility of sharing desires diminished as her need to hear them increased, and it was the same for her. They loved each other's company and would always choose it over either aloneness or the company of anyone else. But the more, you know, there's a word missing here. <laughs> it says the more they found together, which I know is not what it says. The more they found together, the more they found together. Anyway, who cares? The more life, the more life they shared, the more estranged they became. Froom, that's another typo. The more estranged they became. <laughs> from their inner lives. <laughs> I like it. I like it your way. <laughs> from their inner lives. Yeah. From their inner lives. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us why these two articulate people cannot communicate. I cannot understand when I read your masterful novel why Jacob Justin why can't he just say something about his sexual needs, for instance. He goes to this bathroom, he has his secret rituals, he thinks they are secret, mm. but why can't he just say it like it is? I can only say if you really can't understand that, then you're an incredibly lucky person. And <laughs> I mean that. Like I, and I think you're an incredibly lucky man in particular because um, it seems nearly universal among men that I know, a certain kind of... Um, embarrassment or bodily shame or even if it's as simple as awkwardness, like things that used to be effortless between people, like when you know a couple is in their beginning, sex is just effortless, it's natural, it's just what happens. Nobody could ever trace back how it began and nobody would feel a need to, it just happens. And then as you get older and know somebody better and better, you need to somehow figure out the mechanics of it. Like how did that used to happen so naturally? And suddenly you have to you know, have a date night. Like, we're gonna, let's go out for to a movie on Friday. Role play. Well, maybe, yeah. maybe. Um, and the, the ability to extend just, it's, it's not that, it just, it takes on, um, it becomes a problem, whether a small one or a big one. Please uh, enlighten us or no, illuminate uh, to us, you know, the, the secrets of Jacob. What is he doing at the bathroom? Oh, it's so funny. You're the first person ever to ask me that. Yeah. Although, at, actually, at a reading, so Jacob, now this is, it's like giving any time to this is going to misrepresent the novel a little bit. But anyway, he... We have the sexual angle here from the beginning. He takes, uh, like, a suppository. I don't even know what the verb is, and I don't know if that's going to translate well either. But explaining it would be 
awkward, but he... <laughs> you, you, you are a writer, you use imagination, you feel free, you are a poet, you can say anything here. Uh, safe? Yeah, you're, this is a, a, a safe, uh, what is it called, safe house, right? Uh, okay. Comfort so zone. So basically Jacob has hemorrhoids, and he <laughs> takes a medication, like, and puts it in his body. And he, you know, he and his wife can talk about their children's bowel movements, they can... Um, but when it comes to their own bodies, certain things have to be withheld, certain things have to be secretive. Um, not in any kind of grand way, and it probably didn't start out with Jacob thinking, this I can't share. It was more like, you know, I'll just go to the bathroom, I'll do what I have to do, and then I'll rejoin Julia. So what he is doing is not sexual, it's because of hemorrhoids. Oh yeah. I misunderstood everything. <laughs> Well, uh, do you know, there's an old saying, to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Yeah, ex- you ever heard exactly. that? Uh, <laughs> you mentioned Philip Roth. You mentioned Philip Roth. In I should book. say, by the way, in my own defense, and perhaps to illuminate, he goes to the bathroom and puts something in his ass. Yeah. So I don't know if, how many people would make the same assumption no, exa- that no, you did. Uh, we'll just let that hang. You mentioned Philip Roth in your book, to jump to something not completely different, uh, and I think he's compared to Kanye West, uh, and Jacob really goes Portnoy at one point. Mm. Uh, he was the mad scientist, masturbator, always looking for a way to make his hands more like a vagina, it says. Uh, are those pages your attempt to top Philip Roth uh, 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 you know, uh, mm-hmm. in respect to masturbation? They weren't, but... Feel, feel completely yeah. comfortable here. No, i tell you... The this tr- is Denmark, right? I will tell you the truth, which is no, but you cannot write about masturbation without that knowledge of Portnoy's Complaint, which was a really radical book when it came out. I mean, it, you can read it now and it just seems funny or over the top, but it was, it was really revolutionary. And, you know, certain artists own certain genres, like um, Alexander Calder, as he, people here know him, you cannot make a mobile without evoking Alexander Calder. Roth owns masturbation in a, in a similar way, which is an amazing claim, if you think about it. Yeah. It's hard to think of anybody who owns something larger in terms of human experience. And so, so no, it would be impossible to write about it without, in some way, making a little wink to him. Perfect answer, I think. Okay. Uh, please uh, read this aloud. And uh, I will say that this is, you know, the best uh, expression of how many of my friends live their lives. Jacob's needs were taking the shape of his needs rather than his ability to fulfill them. Did everybody get that? Try again. Um, Jacob's needs, there's a missing apostrophe, but Jacob's, <laughs> Jacob's, Needs were taking the shape of his needs rather than his ability. You know what? I don't think that's right either. I think, I think what it says is Jacob's needs were taking the shape of his means rather than his ability to fulfill. Sure, yeah. You know, uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't cut it uh, yeah. out correctly. So, so the point being, like, very few people are capable of making more money without contemplating what they could yeah. buy with it. You know, our lifestyles expand to fit our means, and it's a real problem, and it's, 
it's, it's not an exclusively American problem, but it is a particularly American problem. When people talk about the American dream, it's almost always defined as doing better than your parents, right? Having more than your parents. And that's a dream that makes sense in a country like America when historically everybody has been an immigrant. You know, to do better than an immigrant parent and to claim a, an identity that is assimilated and that is comfortable is noble, it's good. But not, not, when, you're, not when you are now a generation or two removed and when your parents are upper, upper middle class then to that American dream of having more than them starts to become unethical. I completely misunderstood everything for the second time. I thought he was the fulfiller of other people's need, needs in, in such a strong way that so he thought he, it was his own you know, destiny to be the, the guy whose needs were to fulfill other people's needs. I misunderstood yeah. it. Yeah, I don't okay, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> Since, you, since we met each other, you got another son. You had two sons, 11 and 8 years old, and you uh, had a divorce from Nicole Krauss, who is also a writer. Uh, about Here I Am, your editor stated, it's not autobiographical, but firmly grounded in personal experience and emotional energy. Here I Am is very much a novel about the implosion of a marriage. Did Nicole Krauss read the manuscript? Mm -hmm. Short answer? No, no, there's, there's no dramatic answer to give. She's my friend and read the book and was very supportive. Jacob says he couldn't live without her, without her. Have you had the same experience that you are so closely bonded with your ex-wife so you still need her as a kind of more than just a good friend? No, a good friend is just right. <laughs> I see, okay. Uh, at one point, Jacob and Julia discuss how to tell their kids that mom and dad are getting a divorce. Let's hear Thomas Levine read the passage from the book where they have this discussion. Men efter hånden som samtalen tog form, følte Jakob ikke længere behov for at bevare kontrollen. Der var ikke noget at vinde, der var kun tab at beskytte sig imod. Der findes mange forskellige slags familier, sagde Julia. Lyder det ikke som en vinkel at lægge ud med? Jo, jo det gør. Ja, altså nogle familier har to fædre, nogle har to mødre, nogle familier bor i to huse, efter Max straks vil afbryde sig og spørge, om vi er ved at købe et sommerhus og begynder at glæde sig. Et, et sommerhus? Ja, et hus ved havet. Altså nogle familier bor i to huse, et ind i byen og et ude ved havet. Et sommerhus, tænkte Julia og, og forsøgte med vilje at gøre sig selv lige så forvirret, som Max ville blive. Hun og Jakob havde faktisk talt om, det ikke et hus ved havet, det ville de aldrig have råd til, men et andet sted, der var hyggeligt. Det var den store nyhed, hun ville have fortalt Mark den dag, før han mindede hende om, hvor tømt for alt nyt hendes liv var. Et sommerhus ville være rart. Måske endda rart nok til at få tingene til at køre et stykke tid, eller til at de kunne simulere en velfungerende familie, indtil man fandt frem til den næste midlertidige løsning, den tilsyneladende lykke. Hvis de kunne opretholde en tilsyneladende harmoni, ikke over for andre, men i forhold til, hvordan de selv syntes, at livet fremstod, ville det måske være tæt nok på det at føle sig ægte lykkelig til at få tingene til at fungere. De kunne rejse noget mere. Planlægningsfasen, selve rejsen, den efterfølgende dekompression, det kunne købe dem noget tid. De kunne gå i parterapi. Men Jakob havde antydet en 
underlige loyalitet over for Dr. Silvers, som vil få det at gå hos en anden til at føles grænseoverskridende. Mere grænseoverskridende til synligheden end at anmode om en mundfuld spærm ud af røven på en kvinde, som ikke var hans kone. Og da Julia stod stillet over for udsigten til at skulle åbne op for det hele, foruden tiden og udgiften forbundet med to ugentlige sessions, som ville enten, ende enten i smertefuld tavshed eller endeløs snak, kunne hun ikke svinge sig op til at føle den nødvendige håbefuldhed i forhold til det. De kunne have gjort det, som hun havde brugt sit arbejdsliv på at facilitere og sit private liv på at fordømme, renoveret huset. Der var så meget, der kunne forbedres ved deres hus. Køkkenet kunne moderniseres, at det kunne som, der kunne som minimum installeres nye hårde hvidevarer, men, men, men hvorfor ikke også nye køkkenbordsplader, nye køkkenmaskiner eller ideelt en fuld rekonfigurering for at skabe et bedre flow og nye sigtelinjer, et nyt badeværelse, et nyt walk-in-closet. Bagenden af huset kunne åbnes op ud til haven, man kunne smække et par ovenlysvinduer i over brusenissen på første salen, få gjort kælderen færdig. Et hus, hvor mor kommer til at bo, og et hus, hvor far kommer til at bo. Okay, sagde Jacob, lad, lad lige mig være samme et øjeblik her. Okay. I skal begge to flytte samtidig. Det vil vi i hvert fald forsøge på, ja. Og jeg skal så slippe mine ting frem og tilbage hver dag. Nej, nej, vi kommer til at bo inden for god afstand af hinanden, sagde Julia, og det, det, det bliver ikke hver dag. Er, er det virkelig noget, vi kan love? Altså, jeg er mig nu. Jeg synes, det er et okay løfte at afgive i situationen, og, og, og hvordan skal vi så fordele tiden mellem os? Ja, det ved jeg ikke, sagde Julia, men, men ikke fra dag til dag. Og hvem skal så bo her? Altså, jeg, jeg er så sam igen. Ja, øh, forhåbentlig en, en sød familie. Vi er en sød familie. Øh, ja, det, det er vi. Er der en af jer, der har været utro? Jakob. Hvad? Jamen, det kunne han da ikke finde på at spørge om. Altså først og fremmest, selvfølgelig kunne han det. For det andet så er det altså en af den slags ting, som vi var usandsynlige det er simpelthen er nødt til at have forberedt et svar på. Okay, sagde Julia, så er det lige mig, hvad jeg sagde en gang. Nå, ja, okay. Er der en af jer, der har været utro? Øh, og, og, og hvem er jeg, spurgte Jacob? Mig eller dig? Dig. Nej, og det er ikke øh, det, som det handler om her. Men jeg så din telefon. Undskyld, vent. Gjorde han? Øh, nej, det, det, det tror jeg ikke. Det tror du ikke, eller det gjorde han ikke? Nej, jeg tror ikke, han så den. Men, øh, så hvorfor sagde du så det? Ja, for de drengene ved ting, som vi ikke ved, at de ved. Og da han så hjalp mig med at låse den op. Undskyld, hvad? han hjalp dig med at låse den op? Men jeg vidste du ikke, hvad det var for en telefon. Og, og, og så han... Øh, nej. Fortalte du ham? Selvfølgelig ikke. Jakob vendte tilbage til at spille sig selv. <clears throat> det du så, det var en ordveksling med en af de andre forfattere fra min serie. Ja, vi sendte replikker frem og tilbage til en scene, hvor to mennesker siger nogle øhm, temmelig upassende ting til hinanden. Meget overbevisende, sagde Julia som sig selv. Og jeg ja, hvad med dig, mor? sagde Jacob. Var du utro? Nej. Ikke med Mark Adelson? Nej. Du kysser ham ikke til FN-spillet. Synes du, at, at du er særlig produktiv, Jacob? Jamen, så, så kom, så lad mig være dig. Dig være mig. Ja, Sam, jeg har kysset Mark til FN-spillet. Det var ikke med overlæg og undskyld. Det er et ord, jeg aldrig nogensinde ville bruge. Godt, det var ikke planlagt. Det var ikke engang specielt dejligt. Det, det skete bare. Jeg er faktisk ked af, at det skete. Jeg har bedt din far om at tage imod mine undskyldninger. Det har han gjort. Din far er et meget godt menneske. Ja, okay. Godt, vi har, vi har forstået det. 
Ja, men, men, men helt seriøst, sagde Jacob, altså, hvordan, hvordan har vi tænkt os at forklare dem vores resonemang? Resonemang? De brugte aldrig ordet skilsmisse. Jakob kunne godt få sig selv til at sige det, fordi det alligevel ikke ville ske, men han havde ikke lyst til at få det frem i lyset. Julia kunne ikke sige det, fordi så sikker var hun heller ikke. Hun vidste ikke, hvor hun skulle gøre af det. Hvis Julia skulle være helt ærlig, så kunne hun ikke for alvor sige, hvad der var hendes begrundelse for at gøre det, som de ikke kunne sige. Hun var ikke lykkelig, og med en lidet overbevist om, at hendes mangel på lykke ikke lige så godt kunne være et andet menneskes lykke. Hun følte et utilfredsstillet begær i stor målestok. Men det samme gjorde til synlædende hver anden gifte, såvel som ugifte person. Well, it seems I did not misunderstand anything. It says here on page 538, Jacob's needs were taking the shape of his needs rather than his ability to fulfill them. In the break here, Jonathan, he wrote this on my piece of paper, this copy of the book is an imposter. Let's jump to what the critics have all stated, that this is probably your most Jewish book. The first, the most Jewish book you have written, the first sentence goes like this. When the destruction of Israel commenced, Isaac Block was being whether to kill himself or move to the Jewish home. What does Israel mean to you? Mm, well, I should say, first of all, that I have heard that, what you said quite a bit, that it's my most Jewish book, and it was not at all the response I was anticipating, and you know now I'm used to it. But in the beginning, when anybody would point out, forget about most Jewish book, but even that it, that it had a Jewish quality, I was very surprised. I just didn't think about that at all, at all. I thought that it had a cultural specificity, which was my own, you know, and, and I was writing more than my previous two books, not autobiographically, but from my own sensibility. My, my first two novels had very strong first-person narrators, Alex, who, whose voice is practically a character unto itself, And then Oscar in, in the second book, who, you know, the, his, the way that he forms sentences and pushes ideas together is such a large part of the experience of reading the book, I think. And this book is written in the third person. And so it's the, it's the first book where I felt like I was presiding over it and I was speaking in my own voice. So it may be that I was, you know, the reason it was so painful to see myself in that video is because I thought, oof. Did I look like that? Do I talk like that? I have to remember not to do some certain things that I saw because I don't like them. And when I write in the third person, I'm unaware of what I sound like and until it's pointed out to me. So I don't disagree that it has a lot of Jewish content. I just wasn't really aware of it, and it wasn't an intention per se. You have said about uh, Jewishness, it's a funny conflict in my life. I'm not a joiner, but I long to be a joiner. Could you elaborate on this uh, longing? You are a modern, secular intellectual from, from New York, but this longing to be a joiner, which, is, which I guess also is religious, could you... Joe, I'm surprised I said joiner, but um, it just doesn't sound like you a word I would joiner. use. <laughs> it was an imposter interview, probably. 
Um, I, I, I long to belong, maybe, or to participate, whatever the case. You know, so much of what Judaism is, there are a lot of ways to describe it. It may have to do with a, an adherence to a set of Jewish laws. There are an awful lot of Jewish people in the world who don't subscribe to that definition of Judaism. It might be believing in the Jewish God, but there are an awful lot of Jews who don't subscribe to that definition. There, don't seem to be, there doesn't seem to be one shared homeland. About half of the Jews in the world live outside of Israel. There doesn't seem to be a shared language, um, but there is a shared history. And I think that being Jewish for a lot of contemporary Jews is to wrestle with what it means to be a continuation of um, a history and a tradition and a set of codes of being, whether you interpret them as laws or as literature um, or something in between, as I might. So being a perpetuation of that tradition does feel important to me, but that doesn't mean adhering to anything. What it actually means is engaging with it over time. So the fact of it being an open question over the course of a lifetime does not suggest you haven't found a comfortable identity. You know, it could be that the identity is questioning over time, which to me seems very rich. You know, like an open question is richer in life than a question that you have an answer for, which is why often when I speak about my books, if somebody comes to me with, what feels like a really deep uncertainty, not a kind of confusion or ambiguity, but you know, I don't know why that's like that. Part of me thinks it's like this, part of me thinks it's like that, I'm just not sure. Can you tell me? I'll never, I don't tell them because there's nothing to tell. There's no objective truth behind a book, but I won't tell them what I think because it's very hard to disagree with an author once you hear an author's given interpretation. And the, the, something that remains open for a reader is what keeps a book alive for them. Otherwise, it's just entertainment. Yeah. Uh, in the video clip uh, with you and me at uh, uh, the Brooklyn Bridge, uh, we saw you writing and drawing. And actually, you were making a little a letter to my son. You had met him some months previously. And uh, he had a broken heart. And uh, using this little opportunity to, to write and draw, you made him a letter. And I have brought it with me. Maybe we could uh, get it up here. And it says, Dear Ness, that's the name of my oldest son, writing this uh, at, from the base of the Brooklyn Bridge on a sunny New York afternoon. Keep your head up and don't believe in luck. Best Jonathan. September 12, 2007. And I always saw that as a piece of, you know, Jewish wisdom. Don't believe in luck. Keep your head up and don't believe in luck. Is that uh, an interpretation you can understand? And, and never pay retail. <laughs> <laughs> and never pay retail. Yeah, yeah. But I was, I was moved and I gave it to my son and I said to him a couple of weeks ago, do you still have it? Yeah, okay. You know, he, he treasured it and he, he sent me a digital uh, photo. Uh, thank you so much on behalf of my son who is sitting here in the first row, Nis, hi. But it is Jewish wisdom, isn't it? I don't know, I, I actually don't know. I know that um, there's a Jewish imperative to do rather than to, doing takes precedence over understanding or believing. Um, there's an old parable about two people who are approached to give money to a charity and they, they are equally rich. And 
one of them says, um, yeah, this sounds absolutely great. I would love to participate. I think what you're doing is wonderful. Um, here's $100. And they go to the second one. He says, I don't know. This feels fraudulent to me, and I give to lots of other charities, and I'm not even sure these people you're giving to really deserve it. Shouldn't they just get jobs for themselves and pick themselves up like I did? But anyway, here's $200. Go away. And the moral is the person who gives $200 is better because the effect, his effect on the world is twice as great. And what we care about is how we move through the world. It's more important the choices we make and the actions we perform than what's inside of us, which is why you're supposed to obey laws and perform rituals even if you don't know what they mean. The idea is you'll learn with time, and even if you don't, you will have at least done them. And some rituals even defy meaning. You know, Nobody actually knows what the point of doing a specific act is, and part of the understanding is we do it, A, to keep the, the sort of muscles of ritual alive, um, and B, perhaps because um, oftentimes it can keep things interesting for kids. And you know, ultimately what Judaism is about is transmitting values, and so ritual and performance um, is one way of bringing people into that transmission. So not to believe in luck, you know, there, I guess the luck is a word you could substitute with all other kinds of words, um, but the emphasis is don't worry about the believing and the keeping the head up is to say, rely on your action. Yeah, talking about transmitting values, I just have to ask you, you have two writing brothers, Joshua, Joshua and, and, and Franklin, uh, what in your upbringing made uh, you the, the writing brothers, this trio who uh, write books uh, which are sold all over the world? Can you maybe tell us what your parents did to stimulate you to transmit values? Well, maybe it sounds ironic or maybe it sounds like an absolute straightforward explanation, but writing wasn't important to us when we were young. And I wouldn't even say that any of the three of us wanted to be writers, and I wouldn't even say that any of the three of us exactly want to be writers presently. There are things that we love. We are, we are driven people and willful and passionate. We are passionate about things in the world that writing facilitates. So my older brother, Frank, loves history and loves politics. He, um, and he has since he was small. He had a button collection of from presidential campaigns. Um, And, but you, you, nobody pays you to love history. You know, nobody pays you to be enthusiastic about politics. You have to convert your passion into something um, to give yourself a kind of function in the world. And so writing is, was his way of doing that. Uh, my little brother loves to have certain kinds of experiences, to meet unusual people, to see unusual places, to push at the limits of what is expected in, in his life. But again, that's not, that doesn't make you useful in the world. It's only personally gratifying. And so he converts those experiences into this unusual form of journalism that he writes, and that becomes his trade in a way. It's the exchange for getting to have the experiences that he wants. So it's more confusing with me because what is it that I want? If writing is the vehicle, I feel that about myself as well, but it's much, much harder to put my finger on what it is that I want. Your editor, and you can correct me, 
Eric Shinsky said, writing for Jonathan became a way to communicate other things, wrestling with emotional questions, and in this book, political questions and family questions, not writing for writing's sake. I guess that hits the nail, right? It really does. That's um, perfectly put. So maybe you don't even want to be a writer, but writing is well, I do in the a sense good way. that it's how I do the other things. It's like, you know, I took an airplane to come to Europe, I don't want to be a passenger of airplanes. It doesn't thrill me. It's not like my goal in life. But um, it is the best way to get to Europe. And so I not only willfully do it, I happily do it. And um, if they were to one day invent a better mode of transportation, I would take it. If they were to one day, if I were to one day invent something other than a novel that was better at getting me to the places I want to be, then I would also do that. Now, that having been said, airplanes matter. It matters that they're well-constructed. It matters that they're you know, refueled in between flights. It matters that they're tested. It matters that the pilot is experienced. If those things aren't good and proper, then it won't be a good vehicle. And it's the same with novels. It may not be that I started writing them because of a love of novels, but I do have to be very, very attentive to how I construct it and careful and thoughtful in order for it to be a good vehicle to get me to where I want to go. So I wouldn't, I don't want to like to belittle my relationship to books. I love books. I'm grateful for books. There's nothing that I want to do in life more than writing. And that's the important thing, right? Yeah. What kind of book did you set out to write? Here is the result. How did you plan it? What was your ambition? I try not to have ambitions in that sense, because then the best I could do is just fulfill my ambitions, and which is only to say it's a very it's a very limited kind of life, you know. Of the things, uh, it's you know, it's like deciding that you're going to marry somebody you meet at a party, you know. Like, there are going to be a certain number of people there. I will fall in love with the one I think is best, marry that person, and as opposed to having the attitude, I'm not going to be constrained by the options in front of me. I'm going to have faith in the fact that accidents lead people to interesting places. I will be patient, and hopefully I'll find some amazing thing at some point. So when I write, if I were to have an idea in advance of it, I'd be constraining myself to that idea, and I don't have great ideas, actually. I, I think that what I, can, I do sometimes have a talent for is finding the right path by accident. And I've been doing it for long enough now that I know how to, I know when an accidental path that might be interesting appears at the periphery. But I've written four book proposals because that's just a part of being a professional writer. And I've only fulfilled one of them, which was Eating Animals, the nonfiction book. The three novels that I've proposed, I never wrote. And not only did I not write them, I wasn't off by a few degrees, I wasn't even close to writing them, because, and I sort of, I have to admit, I knew when I wrote the proposals that I, it was unlikely that I would write those books, because I'm familiar with my own, my own experience. There's a wonderful saying, I may have even said it when I was here years ago, because I like it so much. Joseph Brodsky said, the rhyme is smarter than the poet. And what he meant was, people write in verse not only because it's pretty, but because when you have to end a sentence with a word that rhymes with the one at the end of the line above, you have a problem. And the solution to a problem is more interesting 
than what you would have done if you had been unconstrained. And the problem of not knowing what you're writing, the problem of um, not being contained or held in by a, an outline is make it a lot harder and it's a lot less efficient, but it allows in all kinds of interesting things to happen that are better than what you could have intended. So the way you combine the implosion of a marriage and this big catastrophe happening in Israel uh, with you know, the story of four generations of sons and fathers, all what you have put in the book, you don't have even a vague idea in the beginning of what you will end with? Where did you start writing? What part of the novel did you start writing? It's hard to say. I, I, the, there is a, a chapter in the book called The Bible, which is when Jacob, Jacob keeps a, um, he, he, is a, he was once maybe a novelist, it's not exactly clear, I think he wrote one book, and then for the last long time he's been working on a TV show that he just doesn't care about, he's, in a, he, he's on a long table of writers and he's not proud of it, but it, it, it pays him well and it's his job. But he secretly has been writing a TV show about his family, which he can't share because it would be too great a betrayal or just because he's too scared of admitting that this is what he cares about. So he's been writing what's called a Bible, which is a kind of, almost like a, a how-to manual for the future actors in the show, how to play anger, how to play jealousy. Um, why did I mention that? Oh, I know why. Because you would probably think that was the last thing I wrote for this book. It feels like a stylistic appendix, almost. It was actually the first thing I wrote for the book. I'd been working on a story in that form for maybe 10 years, having no idea that I had a character who was Jacob. There was no Jacob. Having no idea that it was being written for a TV show. At times I thought maybe it was for a play. At times I thought it was a dictionary. I didn't know, but this kind of index or catalog of um, instructions that would explain the workings of a family. I've actually published a few stories along the way that were different versions of it. Or um, I published a story in The New Yorker maybe 10 years ago called A Primer for the Punctuation of Heart Disease, which is all about different kinds of um, typography that would help explain how a family communicates. Um, so that idea was something I was working on, although you know, it's very hard to point to that and say that was the beginning of this novel because that was nothing in a way. It had no characters, it had no plot, it had no home in, inside of a larger atmosphere, but it, it was the earliest writing that I did for this. You are one out of three brothers in the book. You also have three brothers and you have two sons yourself. How did it affect your writing, not just uh, the style, but of course the content? that you are now a father of two sons. You're not, not just this autonomous artist living a free life. Uh, you really sense this, and you, this is maybe also a story about two writers from your personal life who suddenly have these intruders, kids, uh, all the time. Uh, how did you being a father affect this whole project? It's well, a more mature book than your earlier books, of course. I don't know how it did. I really don't know. You don't have a notion. I don't. I can answer the question, but I'm not sure it would be an honest answer. Um, I just don't know. You know, there, I, I know that being a father has influenced every single thing in my life. So it has also influenced my writing in a kind of ultimate way. But I don't really know what that means. I can tell you that I don't, you know, make observations of my kids and then transcribe them into 
books. I can tell you that a, a large, I, I, just, I just don't know. And I, I'm, I, there is an obvious answer, which is it's affected everything. And I never would have written this book if I weren't a father. And it's changed the way I, the things I feel <laughs> and the depth of my feelings. But I just don't really know if that's true. And I don't know that it's true that I wouldn't have written this book without children. I, I don't know. Tell us briefly about Sam before Thomas reads a passage uh, uh, aloud. Well, here's a case where I can tell you exactly when I started writing him, and it's very rare that I can do that. I was in Malibu um, in California, and I had rented a house with a couple of friends just to like, get away and do something different, just to be outside of the world for a little bit, and it overlooked the ocean. And I tried to put aside a little bit of time every day to write, And I was sitting on a sofa, and I just started to write Sam. I can't explain why. I don't know where it came from. But I remember the feeling very, very well of um, starting to write about his little particularities, the way, I don't think he's going to read this now, but the way that he wears clothing and how nothing quite fits and his relationship to his body, to awkwardness, to language, to girls, to his parents. And I really enjoyed it. And I remember as I was writing, I thought this I could... I could do this for quite a while. So Sam's 13. Sam spends a huge amount of time online in this virtual world called Other Life. Sam is at times the most emotionally immature member of the family, but very often the most emotionally mature <laughs> member of the family. And one of the conflicts in the book is that his bar mitzvah is approaching. The book, in fact, begins with the parents in the principal's office because Sam has been busted at school with a list of, I guess you'd call them bad words. You know, yeah. Homophobic slurs, racial epithets, misogyny. The N-word. The N-word, yeah. Um, and, and so that, that is actually what propels the action in the beginning of the book. So what you must all know is that Sam opposes the idea of this bar mitzvah. And now uh, and he writes a speech uh, uh, for, well, it's a little bit complicated, but he writes the speech for his avatar, which is a woman, a girl in the, in the other life world. Uh, but forget that, because it's so funny just to, to hear Thomas read what, what Sam thinks about this whole Jewish thing. Det er min følelse er noget historisk og ekstrem fortrydelse, at jeg står på denne bimar i dag parat til at fuldføre det såkaldte overgangsritual til voksenlivet, hvad det så end er. Jeg vil gerne takke Kantor Fleischmann for igennem det seneste halvår at hjælpe mig med at forvandle mig til en jødisk robot. Selv i det ekstremt usandsynlige tilfælde, at jeg stadig skulle kunne huske noget af det her med et år, vil jeg stadig ikke vide, hvad det betyder, og det er jeg taknemmelig for. Jeg vil også gerne takke Rabbi Singer, som er et omvandrende svogelsyderslip af et menneske. Min eneste nulevende oldeforældre er Isaac Blok. Min far sagde, at jeg var nødt til at gøre det her for hans skyld, noget som min oldefar aldrig nogensinde selv har bedt mig om. Der er ting, som han har bedt mig om. Så som ikke at blive tvunget til at flytte hen på de jødiske plejehjem. Min familie går meget op i at gå op i ham, men ikke nok til rent faktisk at mene det. Jeg forstår ikke et ord det, jeg skal læse op her i dag, men lige den ting forstår jeg. Jeg vil gerne sige tak til mine bedsteforældre, Øf og Deborah Blok, for at være gode forbilleder i mit liv og altid tilskynde mig til at kæmpe lidt mere for det, grave lidt dybere, blive rig og sige de ting, jeg gerne vil sige, når jeg vil sige dem. Også til mine bedsteforældre, 
Allen og Lea Selman, som bor i Florida, og ved status som hørende blandt de levende, jeg kun kender til på grund af de obligatoriske ugentlige Skype-sessions, foruden checks i forbindelse med Hanukkah og fødselsdage, og som ikke er blevet pristalsreguleret siden min fødsel. Jeg vil gerne takke mine brødre Benji og Max for at kræve en stor del af mine forældres opmærksomhed. Jeg kan ikke forestille mig, at jeg kunne overleve en tilværelse, hvor jeg måtte bære deres kærligheds samlede vægt. For uden at, at dengang jeg kastede op ud over Benji i flyveren, sagde han, jeg ved godt, hvor grimt det følelse kaste op. Og Max tilbød en gang, at han kunne få taget en blodprøve i stedet for mig. Hvilket bringer mig frem til mine forældre, Jakob og Julia Blok. Sandheden er den, at jeg ikke vil have en bat mitzvah. Heller ikke bare en lille del af mig. Ikke om jeg så fik alle de obligationer, der findes i hele verden. Vi havde samtaler om det under påsku, at bat mitzvahen i sidste ende var mit eget valg. Det var alt sammen et komediespil. Et komediespil, som satte dette komediespil i gang, der også blot er en tredje sten på vejen i det komediespil, som er min jødiske identitet. Hvilket helt og dels bogstaveligt talt betyder, at uden dem ville vi ikke være her i dag. Jeg bebrejder dem ikke for at være dem, de er, men jeg bebrejder dem for at bebrejde mig for at være den, jeg er. Det må være tak for nu. Mit afsnit fra Toren er Vajera. Det er et af de mest kendte og studerede afsnit i Toren, og man har sagt til mig, at det er en stor ære at skulle læse den. Se det lyset af min totale mangel på interesse for Toren, ville det have været bedre at give den til en knægt, som var ægte interesseret i det her pis, hvis en sådan knægt overhovedet eksisterer, og i stedet har givet mig det de mere ligegyldige afsnit, to som reglerne for at omgås menstruerende spedalske. <tryk> I det mindste er alle så lige meget til grin her. <tryk> en ting til. Del af den fortolkning, som nu følger, har jeg hugget for andre. Heldigt er jøder kun tror på kollektiv afstraffelse. Okay. Historien om Gud, der prøver Abraham, lyder sådan her. Efter disse begivenheder satte Gud Abraham på prøve og sagde til ham, Abraham, han svarede, se, her er jeg. De fleste mennesker går ud fra, at prøven er det, som derefter følger. Gud bærer Abraham om at ofre sin søn Isak, men jeg tror, at det også kan læses, som om prøven var der, hvor han kaldte på ham. Abraham sagde ikke, hvad ved du? Han sagde ikke, ja. Han svarede med en erklæring, her er jeg. Hvad det end er, Gud vil eller har brug for, så er Abraham fuldt og helt til stede for ham, uden betingelser eller forbehold, og uden at der er brug for en forklaring først. Selve ordet Henini, her er jeg, kommer igen to andre gange i samme tekstafsnit. Da Abraham fører Isak op af Moria-bjerget, går det op for Isak, hvad det egentlig er, de laver, og hvor fucked op det er. Han ved, at han skal ofre som, som alle børn ved det, når det skal til at finde sted. Der står, <clears throat> der sagde Isak til sin fader, Abraham, min fader, han svarede, her er jeg, min søn. Da sagde han, her er ilden og brændet, men hvor er dyder til brændeoffret? Abraham svarede, Gud vil selv udse sig dyder til brændeoffret, min søn. Isak siger ikke fader, han siger min fader. Abraham er far til hele det jødiske folk, men han er også Isaks far, hans personlige far. Og Abraham siger ikke, hvad vil du? Han siger, her er jeg. Da Gud kalder på Abraham, er Abraham fuldt og helt til stede for Gud. Da Isak kalder på Abraham, er Abraham fuldt og helt til stede for sin søn. Men hvordan kan det være muligt? Gud beder Abraham om at dræbe Isak, og Isak beder sin far om at beskytte ham. Hvordan kan Abraham være to fuldkommen modsatrettede ting på én gang? 
Hinini optræder en gang mere i historien på dens mest dramatiske tidspunkt. Da de nåede til det sted, Gud havde sagt til ham, byggede Abraham der et alter og lagde brændet til rette. Så bandt han sin søn Isak og lagde ham på alteret oven på brændet. Og Abraham greb kniven og rakte hånden ud for at slagte sin søn. Der råbte herrens engel til ham fra himlen, Abraham, Abraham. Han svarede, her er jeg. Da sagde englen, ræk ikke din hånd ud mod drengen og gør ham ikke noget. Til nu ved jeg, at du frygter Gud, og han ikke sparer din søn din eneste for mig. Abraham spørger ikke, hvad vil du? Han siger, her er jeg. Mit, for mit svarafsnit handler om mange ting, men jeg tror, at det primært handler om, hvem vi er der fuldt og helt for, og hvordan det mere end noget andet er det, som definerer vores identitet. Min oldefar, som jeg nævnte tidligere, har bedt om hjælp. Han vil ikke flytte på det jødiske plejehjem, men ingen i familien har svaret ved at sige, her er jeg. I stedet har de forsøgt at overbevise ham om, at han ikke engang selv ved, hvad der er bedst for ham, og at han ikke engang selv ved, hvad han vil. I really like Sam. He is almost as charming as Oscar. Is it right? Yeah. Let's jump to uh, the United States right now. Let me start with Salman Rushdie. I interviewed him just before Brexit. He called himself a transplant, referring to his origin in India, his life in Britain, and his present life in, the, in New York City. And he also praised uh, the bicultural writers in America for bringing their culture into the U.S. and into American literature. And he said, it is very rewarding. Americans have traditionally not known so much about the rest of the world. Where is Pakistan? Where is Denmark? The new generation of writers show American readers the world as it looks beyond America's shores. It is hugely rewarding for culture. I wonder what culture he was referring to. It is hugely rewarding for culture. For American Who culture? Is culture? Who is culture? Midwest culture, the liberal culture of New York, writers and its intellectuals. Do you think the average American thinks uh, think it is, it is hugely rewarding with the bilingual writers pointing to the rest of the world? Well, culture reaches people explicitly and implicitly. You know, you can uh, work in translation can be read by an intellectual in New York who mentions it to a friend who is a visual, a photographer, let's say, who is taking a photograph of a hip hop artist who likes the line that he overheard and puts it in a song. And some kid in Bogota is wearing a New York Knicks jersey and singing that lyric. It's um, American culture moves in and moves out. You know, it's um, despite how divided the citizenry is, the culture is very interwoven. And um, it's not only interwoven inside of the states, but its tentacles reach everywhere. You know, if you go to any city in the world, it's sort of funny to remember, and it may be the kind of last hurrah of this phenomenon, but America is still cool in the world. You know, it is in the sense of the kinds of clothes young people wear, the kinds of music young people listen to, the kinds of movies that people go see in theaters. There's no reason to take for granted that that will always be the case, but for as long as it is the case, 
the culture of America is a global culture, or it's globally important. So whatever finds its way in is going to find its way back out again. And, you know, culture comes to us um, almost always invisibly. I can't tell you even, and forget about the difference between an intellectual in New York and somebody living in the Midwest. There's so many things that have been pointed out to me in my books, illusions that I was unaware of, and yet they were clearly correct. Exactly. Somebody will say, you quoted this thing here. I, I thought it was so fascinating. Say, I, have, I didn't read the thing you're talking about. I don't know what you're talking about. But then they'll walk me through the explanation, and they're clearly right. I don't mean that as a joke. It's, it's true. It just happened. Did you forget? Which one? When the line that you gave me? I, I, yeah, exactly. It happened here. You said, I didn't write that, but I said... Well, I'm sticking to yeah. my story. I see. Uh, I'll just say to the technique that in 10 seconds it would be nice to have the next clip and we are again back in 2007. This time it's ground zero in New York and we talk about the US. Yeah. Let's see what's in here. I wonder what's everybody like. Jonathan, there's a lot of patriotism, classic patriotism down here. What is patriotism for you? Uh, it's a good question. Patriotism for me is actually something very private in a sense. I mean, it's the um, pride of living in a place in which people can um, mind their own business and do whatever they want. And I can um, think one thing very strongly and pursue my own ideas about how to live while being next door to somebody who's doing something exactly antithetical. And, um, you know, in a way that's the shame of part of, you know, it's tied, tied into the response after September 11th was this idea that you're either with us or you're against us, or all Americans must now stand as one. In my perfect America, everyone's disagreeing with one another very loudly and uh, loudly and peacefully and going home and carrying on his own life, his own ambitions. Ten years ago, a lot of things changed in the US. You talk about patriotism. Could you just briefly tell us how people reacted after, in your environment, your friends, when this thing happened in November? Um, well, it was sadness. That was actually the predominant emotion, was sadness. Um, I don't think that, you know, let's imagine a very slightly different world, very, very slightly different, where Hillary won by three million votes. That's the world we live in, right? But 10,000 people had voted differently in Michigan, 50,000 people had voted differently in Wisconsin, so that the electoral college reflected the public will, Hillary's president, at least 12 continuous years of a democratic presidency, eight years led by an African-American, four years led by a woman. I don't think a lot of people would be saying, what has happened to America? Like, what does everybody do when they wake up? And how could this be? We would say, yeah, this is America. This is the America we know. We like America. America's still cool. So is our entire understanding of America really tied up with 10,000 people who live in Michigan and 50,000 people who live in Wisconsin? Is it really tied up in 
an election in that was tampered with by a foreign government in a way that had really clear, a clear impact, an election that was an, a, a, an election of unequals in terms of intellect, Hillary was, is obviously vastly more intelligent, but also unequal in terms of charisma. Trump is obviously vastly more charismatic. Charisma is not a positive quality. Hitler was enormously charismatic. But charisma means the ability to persuade people that you are an expression of their you know, um, inner lives, their primitive lives, their emotions, and to make them want to follow you. So three million more people voted for Hillary. The demographics of people who vote for Hillary are increasing. People who live in cities, have college educations, speak languages other than English. The demographics of people who voted Republican are shrinking. We had an incredibly unlikely and unfortunate result. A lot of things conspired to make Donald Trump president, but I don't think it's any reason to ask big questions about the state of America or the American identity. I think it's an occasion to ask big questions about what the hell happens now and how the fuck are we gonna get through the next couple of years? But those are very different kinds of questions. And I think parallels have been drawn between Europe and America that don't really seem accurate to me. Um, you know, in, in Europe, the, the far right has been steadily creeping up for years and years. In every election cycle, you see it just takes up a slightly larger slice of the pie. There are elections in France, in the Netherlands, in Germany coming up, where the expectation is that the creep will have expanded. And rather than it being a contest of personalities, which happens one election at a time, there's a contest of ideas that's going on, which happens over the course of decades. And um, you know, the, results, the, the results, I think, could provoke a kind of questioning about what is the state of European identity. In America, I feel comfortable with American identity. I feel extraordinarily uncomfortable with our representation. And one of the problems is the representation could change the identity you know, very quickly. And so that's something that we have to be vigilant about. One of the nice things in response to the election is to see that Americans aren't ready for that to happen. Um, the response has been far broader and stronger than I would have anticipated, and then Trump, I think, has anticipated. My biggest fear was that it would become normal really quickly. We'd just say, all right, Trump's president, what are you gonna do? You know, we'll make some jokes, we'll act embarrassed, but this is the situation. But that hasn't been the case at all, you know? Um, the American Civil Liberties Union has raised more money in the past two weeks than in, it ever has in its extremely long history. The rallies in D.C. and New York were the biggest rallies we've ever had. Um, there are dozens of lawsuits being initiated against Trump literally every day. The, I think what America actually is will be revealed in a way that is not the way we wanted it to be revealed, which was through an election result that really we would have shrugged off. If 10,000 people would have voted differently, we would just would have said, okay, yeah, it's America, it's great, Hillary's president. Uh, Alan Bett made an interview with you in something called The Skinny. I think it's an online magazine where you predicted Trump's defeat uh, and you said that America's true self will be revealed. And I quote you, he's not going to win, he's going to lose, I think in a fairly dramatic way, and the country that elected a black president is going to elect a woman. But just the simple existence of Trump and the fact that, he, that we are having this conversation about him is alarming. How could the intellectuals, the pundits, how could everybody be so wrong 
What didn't you see, people like you, New Yorkers, broad-minded, transplants, uh, bilingual, uh, bicultural, what didn't you see about what was happening in the part of the world far away from the coasts in the world where people maybe still live in the industrial world, where they long for jobs and security, safety? What did, what did the privileged people didn't, uh, don't see? I think we saw it. I mean, if you'd asked me then, how much is Hillary going to win by? I would have probably said, I don't know, three million votes, more or less. And she won by three million votes. Three million is a lot of people. It's not a couple people. It's a very healthy margin of victory. What I didn't see was that the FBI was going to open up this inquiry into her emails, which is utterly ridiculous. Nobody saw the tampering of Russia. So, the th so maybe the three million would have been six million. Maybe it would have been a proper landslide. In America, that's a landslide. You know, she won the, in, in terms of the will of America. Like the will of America was revealed. We want Hillary Clinton to be president. We have a particular electoral system, and this is the way it happens. Everybody agrees to enter. We knew this going into the game. This is, this is how it works, and it didn't shake out properly. But the, the person who said that, I, I don't feel um, validated, but I don't feel that I said something that was incorrect. No. More than 500 writers signed the open letter to the American people. Writers speak out against Trump. It was people like Juno Diaz, Stephen King, Richard Russo, um, Jennifer Egan, Amy Tan, Dave Eggers, Rita Dove, Michael Chabon, Nicole Krause, Jonathan Latham, David Van, a lot of people, but you didn't. You didn't sign it. Why not? I just don't really check email. I know that sounds... <laughs> Ridiculous, but it's actually true, and, and my publishers can testify to that. Um, so can my former friends. I just don't, I don't check email. It's my, it's my form of resistance. But we ha I, I would have happily signed it if that's what you're asking me. But you blame everything on the electoral system, whereas in Denmark and many other parts of the world, and also in the United States, people have this narrative that there is an elite and there is some, you know, a people here. And there was this, there has been a, a rejection of the way the elite looks at the world. If you take the Democratic Party, Obama's party, uh, some would say that they were interested in identity politics, gender politics, LBGT, stuff like that, postmodern, sophisticated lifestyle issues, whereas they should have concentrated on an old industrial agenda, uh, the agenda that, that, uh, that, Trump's, that Trump recognizes. Isn't that correct? Partly? I, to me, that sounds like an elitist explanation. Um, I think it's actually far simpler, like he was more believable and likable, you know, to many, many people. Everybody knew this going into the election. Hillary is unlikable. It's hard to say, and not to me, but to the general, I happen to think she would have been great. I think she is great. But we all knew, the numbers were clear from the beginning, that she is unlikable. I went to Pennsylvania to a swing district on election day and knocked on doors. And the, the party just sends you to likely Democratic voters. So you're not knocking on doors of random people. You're not trying to persuade anybody. All you're doing is knocking on the doors of people who I think voted for Obama in the previous election, who are likely to vote for Hillary and just say, I want to make sure you know where your polling place is. Do you need a ride? What time do you plan on going? And I had a lot of people who said, I'm not voting for her. And um, some of it was misogyny, for sure. Uh, 
Some of it was um, frustration, a kind of, whether or not it was articulated this way, a feeling that, you know what, we had a um, Bush for four years, we had a Clinton for eight years, we had a Bush for eight years, we had an Obama who is, one could say, a version of a Clinton for eight years, and now another Clinton, like, it's not working for me. Now, that not idea that this isn't working for me is real. And I think that a lot of people who voted for Trump, they're not racist and they're not ignorant, but it's not working for them. And the question is, what does somebody for whom it's not working do? Do they you know, look to, nobody in America more powerfully represents how things have been done than Hillary Clinton, and nobody more powerfully represents a complete deviation from American politics than Donald Trump. So if things haven't been working for you for a good long time, and you're facing a, what is ultimately a contest of personalities and not ideas, it's just not so confusing why somebody would have voted for him. I think if there had been a different candidate, it, it would have been a different result. So just to get this straight, you don't buy this narrative that the people gave a fuck finger to some kind of you know, elite in the, in the States because the majority of the people actually voted for Hillary. I think that people were voting for reasons of class, but were voting against their self-interests because one of the messengers was so much stronger than the other. As a messenger. Yeah. I know you are a writer and an author, but I can't stop asking this kind of question that I will ask you now. I can't stop asking writers this more sociological kind of question. Uh, so now, uh, I want you to be an oracle. Uh, how will this play out uh, in the next years in American politics, do you think? Will, this, will, will you know, mainstream somehow arrive to the White House because he will be forced to accept normal uh, rules and ways of, of, of conducting power? Or uh, is it correct when I today can write in, uh, to read in, in, in the New York Times that this guy, Bannon and Trump, is deliberately disrupting the you know, polit politics from the heart of the state. Uh, that's a very dramatic way of putting it, I think. But you are, so to speak, downplaying the whole uh, situation, I think, when I listen to you now. I'm not downplaying the predicament we're now in. I'm downplaying or revising your notion of the path that brought us here. Where we are is very, very bad, very bad. Um, and in a sense, maybe it doesn't even matter what path brought us here. I've proven myself to be not the greatest oracle in the world, uh, so I don't, time after time. I don't trust my own, uh, my own powers of prophecy. And I think one of the things we've learned is it's better not to trust our powers of prophecy, but instead trust work. And um, I hope, I can say, and I would say I expect that people are going to work in a way that they haven't in the past. America has been very lucky for the last, for certainly my generation has, in that even when we feel misrepresented, even in the case of George Bush, um, we felt that the train was still on the, the American train was on the American tracks, you know? Um, and that we weren't facing, that, that, a, that certain American values and ideals were, were safe. Um, even, if, even if that means they weren't, even if they were held in a kind of 
resistance to the governing body, we, it, was, it was okay. And so we're really unfamiliar with the feeling of things not being okay, and that is the feeling that people have now, that this is a different thing. We look back at Bush, you know, like he's Gandhi. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. oh God, I would put a picture of him under my pillow and sleep at night. Yeah. So we're inexperienced with this feeling, and uh, you know, a lot of people I know are doing deep questioning of what are, what are we supposed to do now? And I think what we will probably see is some experimenting. You know, does it work to have these big protests? Does it work to show it at the airport? Do op-eds work? Do lawsuits work? Will there be civil disobedience? I really don't know, but it's a little like I was saying with when trying to describe my Jewish identity, that the ongoing struggle is itself an identity. So hopefully that will be the American identity in the next several years, is an ongoing struggle. There's no one thing that's going to work. If he were impeached, that's, that wouldn't work, you know, because there's a government behind him that is at least as scary as he is. Um, there'll be somebody who can replace him who is at least as scary as he is. Um, at least he's unpredictable. You know, the people behind him are predictable in, in ways that are terrifying. So there is, there's not going to be a fix in the next four years. In two years, there's another election that can mean something. And in four years, there'll be a presidential election. In the meantime, I think the American identity is gonna have to be one of, um, one that's very fluid and dynamic and um, takes chances and does things that are uncomfortable and unprecedented, at least in my generation. Rusty said that bilingual or bicultural writers can have an effect on culture. How will this affect culture? How will this brutalization of language, how will this affect the world you live in as a, 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 a man who uses words all the time? I don't know. I know that we're talking about words more than we were. Pre I mean, it's odd. We went from having a, a writer president to having a, almost a literate president. And um, Words matter, right? Well, of matter. course, yeah, the way you put things matters. And Obama was, in fact, so good with words. He's the best writer we've ever had as a president. He almost relieved a certain burden of the citizenry. And now we will feel that burden again. And, you know, it sounds a little bit Hegelian, but things could get so bad that they get good. You know, that young people start to feel activated in a way that they haven't before, that people who are apathetic become politically engaged, that like civic action begins to feel like a responsibility rather than an opportunity. And um, I imagine there'll be a lot of pushing back, which could, I wouldn't predict this, but it could leave us in a place in four years that more strongly resembles the America that I believe in and that you in the past have believed in than if Hillary had won. We talked about literature and terror. Uh, My question in 2007, uh, my, my standard question was all the time, can literature do anything uh, uh, when people who are throwing bombs communicate much louder? And now we have literature uh, and the people who use and care for words confronted with this new president. Uh, you like to quote the Polish poet uh, Herbert, and he said that, that the image, imagination is the instrument of compassion. How can compassion be revived and awakened in the US? 
Or is your point that it is already awakened, you just had a bad electoral system? I don't think that, you know, I was telling somebody earlier today about something that happened to me not very long ago when my older brother and I took our kids to uh, like an amusement park in rural Pennsylvania, the kind of place where they probably voted for Trump. And we were in line for a ride, and it's going to sound like a setup for a joke, but it's true. In front of us in line, there was an Orthodox Jewish family. There was an Arab family where the woman was wearing a full hijab. There was an Amish family, believe it or not, um, a Latino family and a black family. And we're staying there, and after a little bit, my brother said, did you notice how you didn't notice that? And I said, what? And he said, just like, look at this line. Do you think this line could exist anywhere else on planet Earth without anybody noticing, either aloud or to themselves? I'm not sure, but I, what I do know is that That's what is regular in America. Acceptance is regular, not because we are in any way enlightened, but because we have so much experience with it. You know, it's a country of immigrants. There's no such thing as a Native American other than a Native American, which is another story altogether. But, um, you know, in terms of the ways, you, you, if we went back and looked at that video, you know, really examined the people moving through the frame, you would see all different kinds of people. And it's not just because it's New York. In, in America, there is really, there is of course latent racism. We have a horrible, horrible history, as bad as any country in the world, of, um, of racism and worse, you know, slavery. But, But how do you see your own books in relation to compassion? Well, they work, again, it's like a very subtle kind of work. There's not, it's not literature against Trump. No, no. It's civilization against Trump. and. Literature is an important component in civilization. It's one of many, many, many components, and they interact with each other in imperceptibly subtle but um, profound ways. And you want to change people with your books. You well, said that. I don't, I want to... You said that, listen. <laughs> you know, I want to move readers. I don't mean emotionally. I want to change people. I want a book. For a book to be necessary for me, it has to transport the reader. Yeah. You want to change people. Be honest now. It's Denmark. You can. I've been honest all night. We, we won't quote you. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's fair to say that. You want to change people. I do, but it's a slippery word. So when I wrote Eating Animals, I wanted to change people in a, in a way that I knew. I wanted to expand a conversation about something that I thought was um, that, that, we, that we have a blind spot for, or that we found too many ways to ignore. Um, with my novels, I have every bit as strong a desire to move and change people. But there's a really crucial difference, which is why I sort of balked when you said it, which is I don't, there is not a specific direction or way in which I want to change people. Um, the books that have meant the most to me. So, you know, I've had people come up to me and say, your book changed my life. I have gone up to writers and said, your book has changed my life. If I were to ask them how, I doubt they'd be able, able to tell me. And if I were to ask, if, there, if I were to be asked how, I doubt I'd be able to put it into words, which is part of what makes the change so rich, you know? Um, it's resonant, it happens over time, it is open rather than closed. I think it has something to do with um, 
being reminded that we're alive and that we live finite and singular lives. You know, that's, I think, the greatest function of art. People who remember that they're alive and who remember that they live finite and singular lives are better people. Um, it is forgetting that we're gonna die that leads us to all kinds of bad behavior, that leads us to a lack of empathy and compassion, that leads us to selfishness and consumption. Um, so, you know, I guess if I were forced to articulate the way that I want to change somebody, it has nothing to do with something I know that they don't know. It's, a, it's conversant, and it, and it has to do with the memory of, of being alive. You teach uh, creative writing at the university in New York. What's your best piece of advice for people who want to become writers of fiction? What do you tell your students? Well, it sounds a little oversimplified, but I tell them don't stop because I've taught many, many, many students. Every class I teach, I would say at least half of the class are talented enough to be published writers. Every year I've taught, I've had at least two students in each class who I thought were definitely more talented than I am at writing. And yet in all these years that I've taught, maybe five are continue to write a couple years out. Um, and it's not because they were the most talented, it's because they were the ones who didn't stop. Really what distinguishes writers from non-writers is not talent. It has something to do with perseverance and because writing is a difficult life. You, know, you give up an awful lot in exchange to be a writer. Forget about financial security and forget about having like a peer group or a workplace or even you know, expectations, which can be so helpful. You give up a kind of emotional security. You give up... A you give up emotional security. Yeah. yeah. You give up a kind of lie that you know yourself in exchange for a deeper self-knowledge, but the journey toward that self-knowledge is very, very scary because oftentimes, you know, blank pages just don't want to be filled. And if you believe, like I do, that writing has something to do with humanity, like the quality of humanity, um, the experience of being a human, if without a boss, without expectations, without constraints, only total freedom, what I put on the page doesn't feel full to me, then the problem is my own humanity. It somehow, it doesn't, I, I talk myself into the idea that it's not a problem of translation. It's a problem of the, the material, the starting material. So it's easy to want to stop, and I want to stop all the time, and Salman Rushdie wants to stop, and every writer I know wants to stop, but some don't stop. It's the same thing with marriage, with Jacob and Julie in the book, you know? Why is it that they, why do some couples stop and others not stop? What makes a successful couple, successful, successful marriage? I don't actually think it's that two people, I don't think it's love, or it's not that two people are, are more compatible with each other or have stronger feelings for each other or less, defensive when they have an argument. I think it's some people choose to have, um, there's a chapter in the book 
uh, one of the large sections is, ca- is called Not to Have a Choice is Also a Choice. So Jacob and Julia allow falling apart to be a choice. And once you allow it into the sort of spectrum of choices, you, most people take it. Just as if you allow stopping writing to be a choice, most people stop. So the secret is how do you not let it be a choice? How, because if it's not a choice, then everything that remains is in a different version of working. You know, and people who work ultimately succeed. Um, George Harrison's wife was asked, how did you stay married for 50 years? And she said, by not getting divorced. And it's the, it's, that is the wisest piece of marital advice I've ever heard. It's five minutes past now. It's uh, 25 minutes to 10. We have to stop, but I feel, Lisa, that we could continue the rest of the night because now we are getting somewhere. <laughs> uh, but I'll end with the way you correct Prince Hamlet of Denmark in your novel because you have this little line here. Oh, not again. Yeah, yeah, please. <laughs> If you can, read it correctly. Something. And maybe you could also add, you know, so people go home in the right, you know, stimmung. Uh, uh, some little point. How can they use this piece of advice in their lives, Jonathan Safran Foer? I thought we had such a good end five minutes ago. <laughs> I, I, I knew what time it was. I built to this climax. Stopping. I said something that I think had some points. Please read aloud okay. what I have framed here. If you, you can read without correcting me. So it says to be and not to be. That is the answer. And Once again. To be and not to be, rather than to be or not to be. To be sure. and not to be, that is the answer. And um, I can, what I can tell you is something that my, my shrink told me, which I thought was a actually absolutely wonderful piece of advice. Yeah. My therapist, if in case that word doesn't have We know it. here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. Um, um, he said, the only people worth trusting are those who can hold extreme paradoxes in their mind Um, comfortably. Um, I think Keats referred to, um, oh God, what's it called? Somebody must know what it's called. He was writing about Shakespeare. Oh God, I'm sorry I brought that up. Harold Bloom? No. No, 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 it's Keats who's referring to, um, I'll remember it the second we're off stage. Ah, But it's basically the condition of being okay with, um, that's what it is, negative capability. Who said that? I'll give you a free book afterwards. (laughs) Not mine. An imposter. <laughs> an imposter <laughs> copy. Yeah. The copy which is an imposter he can get. Yeah, exactly. But please uh, continue. Uh, you know, the, it, I guess it's a kind of Eastern thought, but we... Be- so there's two, two ideas at, at play in this book, one of which is here I am, which is the need to find an ultimate identity, the need to have... Um, the need to not be fragmented, to be the same person wherever we go. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, there's this idea of sustainable paradoxes and um, that you know, maybe it is okay to say, here I am to God, to say, here I am to Isaac. It's a paradox, it's impossible, but it's also the foundational story of Judaism. You know, uh, religion and a people that has outlasted the Roman Empire, outlasted the ancient Greeks, outlasted the Vikings, I'm afraid to say. Um, 
And it may be because of the ability to, to hold paradoxes in a state of peace. Don't you offend Ragnar Lodborg? <laughs> to be and not to be, that is the answer. Thank you, Jonathan Saffron, for Thank you. Thomas Levine. Jonathan Safran Foer besøgte den sorte diamant som en del af vores programserie International Forfatterscene. Næste arrangement i serien er mandag den 30. oktober, hvor den amerikanske Pulitzerprisvinder Juno Diaz er på scenen. Læs mere og køb billetter på densortediamant.dk. Vi håber også at kunne bringe samtalen her i podcasten. Hvis du kunne lide dagens afsnit, så del det gerne med andre, der kunne være interesserede. Og husk, at du kan abonnere på podcasten i din foretrukne podcast-app. Har du kommentarer til ugens afsnit, så find Den Sorte Diamant på Facebook, hvor du også kan holde orienteret om kommende arrangementer. Podcasten er produceret af Kulturafdelingen på Det Kongelige Bibliotek, og musikken er Søren Jacobsen. Vi høres ved i næste uge, når der er mere live fra Det Kongelige Bibliotek.